Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 357th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is John Henderson. John is the founder and CIO for Echo 45 Advisors, an independent REA based in Walnut Creek, California, that oversees 163 million in assets under management for more than 180 client households. What's unique about John, though, is how he has carefully vetted and curated his advisor tech stack of third-party software to provide a strong high-tech client experience, and has then paired the technology with what he calls a client concierge staff member who leverages a series of internal checklists they developed to ensure that every client is receiving a high-touch service as well. In this episode, we talk in depth about how John evolved his high-tech and high-touch mindset to serving clients by regularly iterating upon and updating his advisor tech stack while also elevating his longtime client service administrator into a more holistic client concierge, because the future isn't about tech or human service, it's tech and human service, each doing what they're best at. Why John pursued a certificate in blockchain and digital assets from the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals and now uses a digital TAMP, Eagle Brook Advisors, to hold a 1% allocation of cryptocurrencies for his clients. And why, after 19 years at Merrill Lynch, John left his more than a billion dollar AUM team serving over 400 clients that he could launch his own firm the way he saw fit, which meant including cryptocurrency investing and tax and estate planning and to work with a more manageable number of clients to prevent his own possible burnout. We also talk about the tools and services that John has incorporated into his own advisory firm, including why John utilizes a service called Advisor Referral Boost to gain better vetted introductory meetings to centers of influence like CPIs and estate planning attorneys to get his steady flow of referrals. Why John uses Asset Map to help clients visualize their finances and, and even as prospects fill out their financial information so that they have their own asset map populated prior to the initial discovery meeting. And how John has integrated an annual tax review in any, every client's service offering and then completes the tax refuse efficiently by leveraging Holista Plan. And be starting to listen to the end, where John shares how he went through the breakaway process to launch his firm just as the pandemic hit and had to deal with the pressures of paying employees and having invested a lot of money in office space and tools, even as the stock market plummeted. Why John credits listening to podcasts about advisors and the struggles they faced as they were launching their firms as a major source of education and inspiration for him to launch his own firm, because it's easier to gain perspective on what's really possible by hearing the journeys that others have taken. And how John's own definition of success has evolved as his career has evolved from what was initially about simply bringing on clients and generating revenue, but now increasingly is about being a job creator who's providing opportunities for his team to be growing and expanding as more and more clients are served. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with John Henderson. Welcome, John Henderson, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, Michael. I appreciate you joining us and and the opportunity to talk a little bit today about what to me is 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 a really interesting evolution in the industry around, you know, how much of our future is technology driven, like more tech tools, more automation, basically like more abilities for clients to self-serve. And and then what we do that's still high touch and and you know, some put it concierge level services, like how we go beyond 
what the tech offers and and increasingly automates. And you know, if I feel like if you look at the really large firm environments and like the mega enterprises out there, I feel like they're basically trying to push in tech and automate everything they possibly can because basically software is cheaper than humans and they just would rather minimize the number of humans. For those of us in smaller advisory firms, small being like not a bajillion trillion dollars under management, like the all of the independent community in particular, most of us, I find like we lean the other direction and say, no, 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 like if you want to self-serve with technology, like go do your thing. I'm here to be an actual human being that you get to work with for people that still want to work with a human being. And there's this balance of how much, you know, how much tech and how much personal service do we, do we put in? And so I was struck in, in, uh, in in learning about your your firm and backstory that you you've tried to kind of position yourself in this world of high tech and high touch, not because you're like a tech startup that raises a zillion dollars to make things, but you know, just running an advisory firm, serving clients, buying the technology that's available to us, and trying to figure out how just in practice as an individual advisor with a team, do you make something that is high tech and high touch to clients at the same time? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, being a cyborg is really the answer. Uh, you know, we, we started uh, with just a phone and it was all service really. And that's, you know, getting that trust with clients, being there for them, that's never going to go away. And that's why we, we really never lose clients because we try to respond to everybody within the hour, you know, wherever, however they reach out to us. But, you know, one of the reasons I left the big uh, firm environment is because the tech was so limited. Um, you know, they have to sort of manage to so many advisors. You know, you so you, you get that feeling you're sort of being managed that lowest common denominator. Um, yep. And inability to do things like tax planning. Um, you know, uh, we weren't even really allowed to look at tax returns uh, because we weren't CPAs. So the world, I think, has changed and people want so much more. They need so much more from their advisor. Um, you know, you can never replace that that high touch, that service model uh, with technology. Um, AI is promising something in the future, who knows? Uh, but for now, uh, nothing replaces that human touch for sure. So we put that above everything else is that that client service. Uh, people are going to remember that more than they're going to remember, you know, the returns of the market for that year or anything else. They just know that when they pick up the phone and they call us, you know, they're going to get somebody on the phone who knows them by voice and is going to take care of them. So paint a little bit more of the picture for us of just the advisory business as it exists today of you know, clients and and team size and and assets or revenue however you measure like just give us some context for uh the the business that you run at this point absolutely yeah so we're a team of uh seven right now basically three advisors we have a uh, planning coordinator so i people call it a pl paraplanner sometimes we uh, use the term planning coordinator, uh, and that's Cole. He's been just integral since day one, coming in and, and bringing business over, uh, transferring, you know, from the whole the whole book coming over initially. But uh, uh, we also have a client concierge, and that's who was with me since the beginning. So Jen has been, you know, my my right arm basically for about 15 years now. Uh, never would have left Merrill without her kind of thing, because the client's Look at her and I as you know two halves of the relationship. Again, um, you know the service is so important. So um, that was just you know a, a no brainer. I mean, she had to be on uh, on board to come over. Uh, we got about we had about 150 million in the book when we transferred out, uh, transferred the whole 150 over in the first basically four or five months or so. Uh, was able to get registered directly with the SEC, and then. Um, 
we've had some people, you know, change over the years. We, we did launch with a, a CCO that is no longer with us uh, and a, 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 a planner. He's gone. We had uh, another gentleman that was on the team for a while and he uh, was working toward his CFA. And then uh, pretty much the week he got his CFA, he left <laughs> to go to a much larger uh, institution. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then um, uh, we had uh, uh, one other person kind of come in that was helping on the trading side that didn't, uh, didn't work out long term, but we're finally to the key the core team that, uh, you know, everybody's a self-starter, everybody is hardworking, everybody, you know, has the same goal in mind. And so we really are working as a team. I noticed that teams, you know, are such a push in the industry. You know, they look at the data and they say people want to work with a team. So in my yeah. old days, the teams were basically two advisors. They would smash together and say, you guys are a team now. Uh, and then, you know, their clients would only really talk to one of those people unless the other one was on vacation. Uh, but we're actually trying to function as a team here. So, there's an advisor, you know, it could be myself, could be the lead advisor, but the clients know that they can pick up the phone and call Jen directly when they need something from Jen, or they can call Cole directly if they want, you know, help resetting a password or um, someone to get on the phone as a financial advocate for them uh, with a third party, you know, and, you know, so they don't get steamrolled or, or, you know, talked over. So that's my goal was that it would function as a real team. Uh, and then the clients would actually feel like they actually have multiple people and they know who to call to get their answers quickly. So, so I want to make sure I've got all the the parts of the team. So three advisors, um, planning coordinator with Cole, client concierge with Jen. So then who who else finishes the team as it's currently constituted? My wife is our director of marketing. So I, I married into that. We were we were a little too small, I think, so to have a good, good business strategy. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we are uh, uh, arguably way too small to have a uh, uh, even a marketing budget. But um, she was kind of uh, stuck with us, I guess. But uh, she joined us at launch and, and had a, a long career uh, in her own right in digital marketing. Um, of course, with much larger budgets, but uh, um, she's been helping us out since day one. Um, our website is something we're really proud of. Our branding uh, is something that people are constantly, you know, sort of uh, commenting on. And we're very proud of, of all of that. So uh, she's not really client facing. Uh, and then we also have our uh, CCO, who's Amy. And Amy is also not really client facing, but she's, you know, full time right. CCO. Um, that was really the thing when, when Jen and I realized we wanted to go. Uh, independent, we had, I remember the day we had a meeting with Fidelity and we both came out of that meeting realizing that one of us was going to have to become a CCO uh, if we were going to launch in that way. And uh, that was a formative day. It was the very next day that I met the guy that did come in as our CCO that is no longer with us. But um, that was, that was a a light coming on because we really wanted to go independent, but that was something that uh, had always been provided coming from the, the comforts of of the wirehouse. Um, that was a big light coming on for us. Uh, so, um, everybody's kind of a hybrid too. I'm just, I'm fascinated by that shift. You know, I was, I was in the wirehouse world. Compliance is always provided for me. I'm going independent. Uh, I guess I have to hire my own chief compliance officer if I don't want to do that myself. Uh, so like, I guess I'm just wondering, is that a, was that a drawback? Like, oh, geez, we have to hire a person to do this. Is that a a, a plus? Like, oh, we have to hire a person to do this, but that's less than the what I paid off the grid at the old firm anyway. So maybe that's a deal. Like, how do you how did you think about that transition of we're we're going independent, but if we want to handle compliance, we feel like we have to get a you know a, a whole person to solve this for the business. I mean, it was really a necessity because as we started to interview, I looked at some supported options. Um, you know, I met with uh, the guys from Kestra. We met with Satera along the way. Um, but really what came clear to me is that I, if I was going to take that leap, you know, because we had a, you know, I was very comfortable at, at Merrill. We had, 
you know, I'd been there for 19 years and 10 months. Uh, we had a very successful career there. But um, if I was going to do it, I really wanted to be the, the one who's going to call the shots, you know, and it came very clear to us that if we were going to join a lot of those supported options, which was really set up for you to kind of leave Merrill and still feel like you were at Merrill really was what they were sort of, uh, you know, uh, providing for people that really didn't want to do any of that back office stuff. I've, I've never been afraid of being a business owner. I've always been excited about it. And I think that that's where a lot of people, they launch their own firm. They realize that they're, they're good financial advisors, but maybe they're not really good business owners. Uh, and to me, it's always been exciting. Um, I just knew on the CCO stuff, that wasn't what was going to excite me. And I think that you should always uh -huh. be working on what excites you and delegate what's going to burn you out. Uh, and <laughs> I just knew, both Jen and I knew right off the bat that neither of us were really going to be uh, too excited about doing the CCO work. And we both knew that we we're going to be wearing multiple hats with clients. And so even in a world where there's you know this growing range of like compliance consultants out there, you didn't want to keep the responsibility with a consultant. You just wanted a full-time person who was going to solve this for you. Yeah. And we all worked as hybrid employees. So the first uh, CCO really did come in as a, he was sort of our head planner and then also a CCO. Uh, that's now been sort of split out. So now Nanette, um, who I know that you know from uh, her days back at X, yeah. XY Planning Network, she... Um, she has come in and she's now our director of planning. And so everybody has a hybrid. So she's also one, of, she's an advisor in her own right, you know, has her own clients that she can service, but she's also handling all of the uh, planning for all of our clients within Echo 45. Um, it's something that I think was, is, is necessary. And, and a lot of my clients that have been with me for 15 years or so, you know, they don't really look at me all the time as their planner. You know, they kind of look at me as their investment guy, you know, it's just sort of a, a function of, of what, you know, how right. long they've been with me. So, half of the job is really getting them to, you know, engage in the planning and get them to see the value in doing that. And I find that if it's another member of my team, I can say, hey, let, you know, chat with Nanette. And then they, it kind of opens that for them because they don't have that frame that, you know, she's just on the investment side. So uh, another excellent addition Inter to the team. Yeah. Interesting. So, because I'm, I'm always fascinated by that transition of when you have long, long-standing clients that know you for like the thing you did originally for them, it's ridiculously hard sometimes to, to, <laughs> to reframe the context of that relationship, right? If like if you know, you originally did some insurance with them long ago, like you're you're still their insurance guy or gal, and it's hard to to shift it. If you did some investment work with them originally, often they put you into that box, and and it can be difficult to get them to accept or recognize like no 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 we're like a little broader we do more things we're more we're more holistic now so your your way of framing it is like well now it's not just me there's a team our team includes this wonderful director of planning her name is Nanette i'm going to ask her to join us in the conversation and support you on some of your broader planning needs like that's that's how you get to open that conversation with clients that don't want to let let go of you being investment guy Hundred percent, and then I can tee her up. You know, I can I can make the introduction. It's always better if somebody else introduces you, as you know. <laughs> and so yep. that way, by the time they talk to her, they're already you know they've already heard from me that I think she's going to do a great job for them, and then they're going into it positively and 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 already seeing the value. So yeah, it's just uh, it's it's queuing it up in the right way and sort of getting them to. And then also that's how we that we 
you know, gain leverage. Uh, she can, or scale, because then she's, you know, able to do these meetings directly with clients while I'm, you know, working with a different client, you know, during that hour. So it, it has been uh, a, a, a much better way to go. And that's really what I wanted to build was, was something much larger than myself. That's why I didn't name the firm, you know, John Henderson <laughs> Wealth Management when we left, because um, I really did want it to be a, a much larger institution than myself and a, and a, and a team feel. So, so I understand now the, the the team of seven and what it looks like. So, how many how many clients is it? Like, just how many people or households? However, you measure. I think it's about one hundred and eighty households right now, um, somewhere okay. in that range. I don't. I, I feel like it's one hundred and fifty. I think we looked. It was like one hundred and eighty something like that households right now. And what's the asset base for you right now? About one hundred and sixty three. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so that typical client is right, right around a, mo- a million or or just shy, right? Just one hundred and eighty into one hundred and sixty three. So yes. it gives a good, yeah. Obviously, on average, range, yeah, we, yes, a range with some bigger and smaller, but. But yeah, that's for a long time, that's where your sweet spot is. Yeah, a lot of our for a long time, my niche was was working with uh, IBEW, which is the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the uh, the union for PG&E, um, which is the uh, utility up here. So, about eleven years, that's pretty much exclusively who I met with, did planning for, uh, worked with. So, about sixty percent of our clients are retirees from PG&E at this point. So, you talk about in the past. So, what what ended or changed? <laughs> uh, me leaving the team that had that niche. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that was working over at Merrill. I was working on a large team for about eleven years, and they had that relationship. So part of me leaving that team, you know, to get my sort of independence within that firm before going independent uh, and leaving the firm, was well, walking away from that niche. Unfortunately, so um, something you, you've done a lot of work on uh, in your career is, is just the importance of a niche and how how powerful that is, and um, that's really. The last three years of this firm has been sort of getting everything dialed in, and really now the next step is moving into our new niche, which we're we're working toward now, and um, that's something that uh, you know has to happen. It's it really is a stark difference because once people know you in that in that community, they start talking about your name. It's a it's a whole different ballgame. So so this kind of moving away from the niches as you left, like I mean, was that a was that a requirement like there was an agreement or or was that just uh i want to be respectful for my colleagues that i work with for 11 <laughs> years like i'm i'm my clients are coming with me but like i'm i'm not going to go compete against them in the thing that we were building together yeah, it was it was more like a divorce within Merrill. You know, you're you're walking away. You're taking these clients to service. They're keeping these clients, and uh, it was an 11 year team relationship. Uh, yeah. It was very large team. Uh, we had over a billion in assets on that team um, that we were, we were managing. I was handling 420 households. I had 18 calls a day just to to break even. Uh, just to, to stay, stay wow. up with my client service. Yeah. So that's, that was, I kind of burnt out, you know, on that team just because of the way that things were running. So I, that was my first time I was kind of running the daily operations of that team. And I thought, you know, I can do this better, you know, and that was the ultimately why I wanted to go uh, away from that team, even if it meant walking away from uh, such a, a built-in niche. Um, I just knew that we could do, we could do more for people. So in that, in that vein, like when you left and transitioned, was it a, a conscious shift of 
yeah, I don't even want all of my clients because I'm serving too many clients on this old team anyway. It's like, I'm just going to no. take the subset <laughs> that I wanted. Hey, no, like, I, lo- I loved every client. Yeah, no, I wish I could have oh. kept working with all of them. Yeah, I loved every client on that team. It was it was a lot for, you know, uh, one person to keep up with those calls just because we had a very high, yeah. uh, you know, we reached out to every client pretty much. I mean, some clients we were calling them every six weeks. You know, we just kind of left it up to the client and let them pick their their call frequency, which was a mistake. Um, you know, and I've, that's one of the things I changed, you know, pretty much we still do reach out quarterly to every single client proactively, plus other outreaches as well. And, you know, market commentary and all these things. But um, to me, you know, you've got to, you've got to always be reaching out. You got to be touching base with them, hearing what's going on with their life. Have they had changes, you know, really staying on top of, of anything that's new with them. But uh, uh, yeah, um, it was it was not that I wanted to leave any clients. It was really more of Merrill says, you know, this is your portion of the team, and you get to walk with this many clients, and it's a it's oh. a big you know contentious be, thing. And oh yeah, you, it was be, drama because because the whole dynamic is when like when you're really teamy team, not just we're pretending we're a team, but really you have your clients and I have my clients, and we share some overhead. Like if you're really a team with shared clients. Who gets what if we separate mm-hmm. is kind of messy. Oh yeah, real messy. Yeah, and it's uh, it wasn't fun, but it, it was ultimately it, it was the first step in this journey to getting to this point. So it had to happen, um, and it was it was tough, but it's it was part of the journey. And uh, best thing, I, one of the best things I did uh, along the way for sure. But I learned a lot on that team. I learned you know just so many things during that time. So it was it was an excellent uh, skill building time of my life. So how does the uh, like just how does the carve up work if you've got to figure out like who who gets which clients when you go through the team divorce? I mean, like, do you do you do they get tagged of like who brought them in? Is it just a split? Like, does someone from on high declare what it's going to be? Just how does <laughs> how does that how does that work? It's actually written into the pool agreements is the way that they used to do it. So it, the way that ours happened to have been written, and, and it's funny because you don't really notice this when, when you're starting, but at the end, it becomes, it's like like a divorce. It becomes very, very important, you know, the way these things were written up. And, and ours was actually manager discretion. So, you know, a multi, you know, just a, the largest team, you know, in the, in the complex was, was breaking up and it was really up to the manager. So it actually was very subjective, more than I would hope. Um, and there was a lot of sort of, you know, horse trading along the way. And was I going to stay out there? Was I going to go to San Francisco? Because my, my real goal was to you know, live and work in San Francisco. And I was living in the city, wanted to work out there. It was my goal since day one. And I just was never able to do it. In the beginning, I started at Oakland. Uh, then I went out to Walnut Creek, which is the East Bay out here. Um, and then finally ended my career in, in San Francisco. But that was also ultimately one of my goals too, was just to live and work in San Francisco. Interesting. So just like what's, what's to stop the manager from saying like, hey, you know, the team's comp, you know, the team's assets also kind of rolls up to my goals because I'm sure managers have some assets and flows goals as well. It's like, John, I've 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 used my manager's discretion to determine that your discretionary allocation is no clients. Like I just what's to prevent them from just not assigning you clients if it's the discretion of someone who wants to presumably keep all all the clients if they could. Well, what I learned was really nothing. Um, you know, it really was just manager discretion. And it was uh wow. there was a fairly big swing in what I was going to be able to keep if I stayed versus going to a different complex, which, 
was totally within the rules. Um, you know, but looking back, I feel like the world is different now. <laughs> I don't, I feel yeah. like things were, things were different then. Um, and it was just, yeah. a, it was a different environment, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was tough getting away from there. Uh, but again, it was, it was the right thing to do. And then I, it was kind of funny cause I went to San Francisco for a week. Uh, that manager I then learned later had already was leaving. He didn't tell anybody, but he was leaving that office. And so I went over there, I was bringing a a fairly large book and he didn't even have an assistant ready for me. He didn't, uh, hadn't, he had no office for me. He had, he like put me on a floor where they, they had no printer. And like, I was just, I was sitting there and I was like, this is the most closed door I've ever experienced. What am I doing here? You know, I mean, this is not right. Uh, and I ended up going back to Oakland. So it was, if I would have just gone straight from Walnut Creek to Oakland, I probably would have helped myself a lot of bit, you know, quite a bit on the money side. Um, but I was trying to get to the city and I was there for literally about a week before coming back to Oakland was in Oakland um, with Jen and I as a, as a team for a number of years. Then we did go over to, uh, I dragged her over further, further west uh, to go all the way to, to 555 California, which is where we were at for the last like five years of, of my career at Merrill. Okay, interesting. So you, so you had a couple of different Merrill branch moves as you, as you moved around geography that also put you on teams, put you, pulled you off teams. And Jen Blesser saw went along with you. <laughs> Absolutely. And now we're out here. We're out, we're in Walnut Creek finally. So I came back her direction. So uh, she won in the end. But we, uh, yeah, it was uh, moving offices too. You'd think when you're working for a big firm, it would be an easy thing to move from one office to the next. But it was a whole account number change, repaper. Like it was, it was a lot of, a lot of client upset to go from one office to the other. Uh, and I did it a couple of times, uh, which was, you know, it should have been, I think, a little smoother. But yeah, it was a big deal. Interesting. Even even though like you're still, I mean, you're still with Mother Merrill. Like you're you're still under the under the same umbrella, but there's still repapering requirements even internally. Or I guess were, were at the time. Well, I don't know if they the way at the time they, the office uh, prefix was the first three digits of the account number. And so if you're going to go okay. from you know Oakland to San Francisco oh. or Walnut Creek, you actually you actually had to get a whole oh, new no. account set of numbers. Yeah. So cl- clients need new account number, which basically means new accounts, which means new account paperwork. You know, and, and back in the day, people really cared about that. Now people don't even know their account numbers. You know, we're right now what we're right. going through is the uh, the three and a half year transition from you know TD being acquired by Schwab, uh, right. which is going to finalize here in about a month. But um, that even is seems like less upsetting because the clients don't even know. They just call us and say, "Hey, I want to move money out of my IRA." You know, they don't even know their account numbers anymore. Right. So right. yeah, so it seems like it's actually less uh, of an impact on clients now. So, so do you have a sense as to where you're going with a new niche now that you kind of get to set your own foundation for what you want it to be? I do. And I'm, I'm just so excited. I want to come back and talk to you in three years uh, to see if it is a success. <laughs> uh, but I finally feel like I have a direction to run in. And so that's really, uh, I'm very excited to be, to be moving forward. We actually, uh, uh, one of the best things we've done recently for business development, we started working with, I know, because you know, we like to share best practices on on here, and yeah. I, I almost I'm hesitant to do it because he's been so great and his team has been so great. I don't want to I don't want to overwhelm them, but um, it, I'm not sure if you've heard of Advisor Referral Boost. There's a guy named Jason uh, uh, Isaley, and his team has been basically they set meetings for with centers of influence. So if you're looking to meet like CPAs, to say what what do they do? Uh, they they okay they set meetings with CPAs. 
Okay. C- centers, yeah, really whatever you're looking for. So, you know, CPAs is a, a great one for, I think, most advisors, complimentary business. You know, you can refer to them, they can refer back. Um, maybe estate planning attorneys, you know, are another one. But they basically, I've done a lot of these over time where they make these promises, you know, and it ends up just being like a cold call. <laughs> you know, if the, if the person right. shows up at all, a lot of, lot of no-shows. Um, and this has just been the best experience I've had because the, their team not only sets the appointment as, as though they're calling from my office, you know, because they reach out as like an extension of your team, but then they, they follow up the day before to confirm the call. And then they're letting me know all of this through a, you know, a shared sort of a CRM that they set up. So it's been a tremendous experience. Yeah. So, so I, I'm fascinated by this. So I just want to make sure I, un, I understand the mechanics. Like you, you hire advisor referral boost to say, look, I want to get in front of more CPAs or attorneys or whatever it is. Like I'll do my thing to, you know, share my expertise and, and try to establish a relationship I just I I need at bats. So uh, you pay advisor referral boost. They reach out to local CPAs or attorneys or whatever it is you're targeting. Say they're calling from your office to try to set an appointment to get to know each other. And if they do a good job, you just show up to meetings with prospective COIs and start relationship building. Absolutely. And and so these have been some of the best calls I've had. Um, you know, I, if I was actually trying to reach out, I feel like I would, it would be a struggle to even get these meetings set. Um, but, you know, they have access to my calendar. So they've been, I've been getting like two of these a day. <laughs> uh, but the way they've, the way they did it uh, is basically they promise 30 meetings with COIs or centers of influence um, in 90 days. And so that's where I signed up for, uh, paid their one-time fee. Wow. I also really liked that, that it was, uh, you know, other ones I've worked with, they want to cut of the business, <laughs> you know, yeah. even in some of the so cases. What, um, yeah. So what's the price? Like, what do you have to pay to get 30 meetings in 90 days? What I paid was 3500 Um, I don't know if their pricing is okay. still the same, but it was 3500 for the 30 meetings. Um, and I would say that it's, it's been well worth it. Um, by far, I'm, I'm so, just going to, we're going to, we're actually going to switch it to yeah. a monthly uh, going forward. I'm just going to keep working with them. So, so I'm just trying to, I guess, understand the context of it. Like, just what are they? I mean, like, what what expectations are they creating for the for the meeting? I mean, they they're just calling to a random CPA. I mean, I'm sure they're trying to find people in the area, but just like I'm calling from John Henderson's office at Echo 45, and he'd love to meet with you about like why, like just what's potential, I, yeah, potential referral partnership. Uh, you know, right up front. So just, just right uh, up there. Like, yeah, we're a, and- we're a local registered investment advisor. We have the potential to, you know, we have clients with needs for your services. Um, and obviously we would like to become a referral partner if we, you know, could do a great job for your clients right. as well. Yeah. And it's been, um, and so right out there with one it. No show. With- yeah. Yeah. And, so and when they're on the call, there's end, no confusion. Yeah. Right. Well, and I guess from their end, right, you're, well, who knows how many calls they do that fail before they get one that that succeeds, but you know they may call a hundred CPAs who aren't interested before they find the thirty that are willing to take a meeting with you. But from your end, like everyone who takes that meeting knows exactly why we're getting together. So there's no like, hey, I'm just trying to get to know you, and then someday maybe I hope we'll form enough a relationship for referrals. Like, does everybody knows coming up? This is a CPA who is not into doing cross referrals. Presumably, like they're just not going to take the meeting, so you're not wasting your time. 
Exactly. And even some of those, I've had a few of those where they kind of, you know, start off like we're not really interested in referring back. That shouldn't be a, a consideration. But I just kind of treat it like a cold call I would with a with a prospect from back in the day. Right. You know, you just keep asking questions about them until you get them to laugh. You know, and then they're talking about themselves. Yeah. Then they're then they're flowing. You know, then uh, you hit something that's important to them. And then it's like the person changes. I, I, was, I had one of these the other day. I was talking right. to an attorney and his it was he was talking to me like I was given a parking ticket. You know, <laughs> he was just like, you know, I'm really not going to be a referral source to you. You know, and he, he put it out there like five times, you know, that, you know, he really wasn't going to be able to, to send people to me. But by the end of the call, we ended up finally connecting, um, you know, on, on a couple of personal things. And then, you know, he was like off and running. It was really, it was the crypto stuff um, that kind of tipped it. You know, I let him know about our, our capabilities of, of holding crypto assets in trust title. And that is just such a big deal to estate planning attorneys because they spend so much time uh, creating these these beautiful trusts for these families. And then people have these assets that are just floating around uh, that could be triggering probate uh, in some cases. And it's very difficult in the current landscape to get those assets, whether they're at Coinbase or Binance or wherever you're doing your purchasing, um, Robinhood, you know, none of those really support trust titling. And none of the big firms can get into it because it's not regulated yet. And that's actually one of the biggest reasons I decided to leave Merrill was just because I felt that that whole industry was just not going to be able to touch it until they had regulation. And that's just like two or three years that we have where this whole industry is going to change so much and we need to be out in front of that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, another big part of our, our focus now. Interesting. So, so you get a series of 30 meetings in 90 days. Like, is this all in person? I mean, you mentioned something around zoom with the attorney that really likes that you can do crypto and trust structure. I mean, are the, are these in-person meetings? Are these virtual meetings? Because hey, we're in the we're in the new virtual world. Like, how do, how do the meetings work? Most have been set up as phone calls. Uh, a couple have been like Zoom type calls to start. Uh, one was in person to begin with because the uh, we actually had a shared client. And so that's something I didn't even know because obviously I'm not the one making these outgoing calls. Yeah. And so he took the call and then he looked at us. He said, oh, we've got a shared client. He wanted to meet in person. Uh, so that was great. That was right, you know, just uh, off and running right uh, yeah. right off the bat. But <clears throat> um, most of these, uh, about probably maybe four or five of these, I've already then turned into second meetings where we've met in person. And that is really where it happens, right? Because then you've, you've talked to them, right. you kind of get the idea, they know who you are, they look you up. And then when they come and sit with you, that's where you really get that sense of who somebody is and then, you know, get that comfort level. So now I'm moving on from the first meetings to the second meetings with a lot of them. And really the, the follow-up is the biggest thing. So trying to get something to them, you know, some Echo 45 swag, something cute, you know, <laughs> you know, right. for them to, you know, remember us and then sort of a, a something helpful for them, or, you know, maybe leave them a review, something we can do, you know, to be uh, positive. We have a little you know, Echo 45 onesies, you know, so when clients have young children, uh, we, you know, or, or, you know, these uh, COIs yeah. have been sending those out and they, people love that. I mean, they love that more than anything in the world. It's just, you know, uh, you know, so things like that, just uh, the personal touch. Very cool. Very cool. And so, um, so now help us understand what this looks like from a, a service model uh, uh, perspective. So just for clients of Echo 45, as you're trying to live this balance of, you know, how do we how do we do high tech and high touch like what does it look like for clients on an ongoing basis how do you try to stay engaged in high tech slash high touch manner well it's it's kind of funny it's it's sort of on the simple side uh, but so i think the best bang for buck that we've gotten for our tech dollars has been calendly <laughs> um in my merrill days most of my my job was 
calling clients, leaving voicemails, uh, then being on the phone when that client called back. So I could then yeah. call them back later. So, you know, phone tag was like 30% of my day. Um, now, Calendly, literally, I will send out a, a, an email to the clients that I'm, I'm due for the quarterly review. Hey, how you guys doing? It's been a, been a few months. Time for our check-in. Please book right here. They click that link and then they just show up on my calendar, <laughs> you know, so they're ready for me when they want to talk to me. It's just, you know, my whole day is, is very efficient now. I don't have a lot of breaks, but you know, it just kind of fills right up every day. And so it's not a lot of me doing, I almost do like zero outgoing calls at this point. So out of curious, like how, how do you stack your meetings in, in Calendly, right? Cause you know, if you're not careful, it, it will really fill your day if you leave them all. It does. Time. Yeah. And I'm so a, how, I'm a, ma- how yeah, do I'm a you masochist. <laughs> How do you like? How do yeah. how do you set it up? Like, what 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 do you set it as your like preferred ca- you know calendly scheduling options to let clients stack meetings with you? Well, I'm I just let it go. I open it. I'm I don't take anything before 10 a.m. Just because that way I know I have my morning you know is 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 guarded and you know I can get done what I need to do. First call be 10 a.m. every day and then I, I it's wide open till five. So some days I'm on the phone from 10 to five or in meetings back to back almost you know from 10 to five. I'll get a couple of 15 minutes or 30 minute breaks and there's somewhere to, you know, hit the restroom or grab a, grab a, you know, a coffee, but pretty much I just let that dictate my day. It's, it's the most effective way for me to kind of get through as much as possible. Um, yeah. And, so I, I, you can definitely put guardrails on that if you need to, which, uh, Nanette is starting to recognize uh, my, fl- <laughs> she doesn't like the same, uh, you know, open flow so that you can put like maximum two, you know, two client meetings per day or, you know, whatever you want to do in there, but it's, it's been wonderful. It's just a great productivity. Uh, enhancement and 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 how long are are typical meetings for you like are you a one one hour ongoing meetings kind of guy or or do you like them longer do you like them shorter i let the client pick a 15 minute quick chat a 30 minute meeting or an hour long meeting and most clients will take the 30 minute meeting uh it's usually plenty of time for us to get done what we need to get done uh, if it's going to be a tax review if it's going to be a planning meeting we'll do an hour for sure and we'll use the full hour and then it's just always there too. I think mean, clients can just use that. That doesn't have to come from me. It's uh, it's on our portal, you know, book time with your advisor. Um, people just book right there too. And so uh, it's, I find that that way, everybody, nobody's feeling like they haven't heard from me in a while. That was the thing before, like yeah. I haven't heard from you in a bit, you know, but now it's, it's, you know, it's, it's that almost never comes up just because people are always, it's so easy to, to get on the phone with me if they need to. And, and I think you'd said earlier, you're, you're, your goal offhand is qu- is quarterly is reaching out to clients or at least give them the chance to do this quarterly. Yeah, I, over my years of doing this, I found that's the sweet spot. You know, if it's qu- any less than quarterly, people start to feel like they haven't heard from you in a bit. Um, more often than quarterly, not enough is really changing. Um, you know, either in you know markets or their lives, and so quarterly seems to be like a really nice sort of frequency to check in with people. Um, if they don't have anything going on, not everybody books. You know, if I send it out each quarter because they've been working yeah. with me for you know, eighteen years and they're retired and they have a pension and you know, they're very comfortable yeah. and they'll, they know how to find me if they have anything yeah. they need. But um, yeah. And then of course the at minimum annual, you know, yeah. full, you know, sort of check-in making sure KYC. I was going to ask like, how do you have any sense as to how many clients you reach out for, for a quarterly and, and their answer is none of the above. Like I don't need a 15 or 30 or 60. It's like, John, I'm, I'm good. Nothing's really going on. Like I'll call you if something comes up, you call me if something comes up. Other than that, like, I'm I'm good. I don't, I don't really need to be right now. Because so many of our clients have been with me for so long, it's 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 a it's a decent number. It's not it's uh 
I, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's there's a comfort level there for sure. So it's uh, I don't feel like a stress like oh I haven't spoken to so and so in a little bit just because we we have had such a long you know time together. It's a, a lot of clients feel like friends. I mean, a couple of clients that were they started as clients they actually came to our wedding in uh, Cabo. So you know <laughs> we've uh, I've been very blessed uh, with with my career. I mean I, I pretty much just talk to people all day long that I enjoy speaking with. It's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful career and. And how many days do you take these stacked meetings? Like, are you are you doing this all week long, or do you hold a day or two internally for other stuff? I just open it up Monday through Friday. Um, we have a couple of internal meetings. Uh, we have a Tuesday huddle, uh, you know, so the whole team gets together for thirty minutes every Tuesday. Uh, then we've got you know, uh, you know investment committee meetings that have to happen. We have uh, financial advisor check ins, these kinds of repeating things, but. Um, there was a period of time a few years ago where I think we got a little too meeting heavy internally because we had a lot of objectives we were trying to accomplish. And there was just like everybody was doing these sort of internal meetings. Um, and we had to, uh, you know, step in there and, you know, consciously reduce the number of meetings that were on people's calendars. So I think we found a nice uh, medium here where we have a, a couple of standing meetings each week that everybody is expecting. Tuesday is the big in-office day because, um, you know, COVID drove everybody out, right? I mean, nobody was coming in the right, office right, right. You know, for a long time, but um, it's really starting to come, you know, people are coming back now, but Tuesdays, uh, is if I'm going to book anything in the office with a client or somebody else that wants to come in, those are generally we shoot for that. But otherwise, I just leave it open Monday through Friday and, um, you know, we take a three-day weekend here and there, but mostly I try to keep myself available to clients as much as I can during that, during the week. And so what, what happens at Tuesday Huddle? Just everybody gets a chance to kind of speak, um, you know, go around Robin, go around on the team, you know, uh, you know, ask Cole what's going on with any clients that he's working on that week. Is there uh, any objectives that they need that he, you know, that he's not, you know, comfortable with or anything we can help with? Um, James will uh, chime in on the trading. Uh, James and Cole and I represent the investment committee for the firm. So uh, we'll talk about any changes that we're doing with with investments uh, potentially. Then we'll go around. Uh, we'll talk about compliance. Amy can let the everybody know if there's anything that's changing or uh, any objectives they need to, to do to stay compliant. Um, any client issues with Jen, and then any planning objectives uh, with Nanette. So just kind of go round robin uh, with the team and, and see what uh, see what everybody needs. And then that pretty much eats up the 30 minutes pretty fast. Um, and it's very you know, you know useful time. And then uh, get everybody back to work. Interesting. Interesting. Is that when is that in the day? Is that like a First thing in the morning or last thing in the day? Tuesday at 10. Yeah. Uh, do it in the morning. Uh, hopefully get everybody fresh. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. So then, so then our, our, what, what else happens in the world of trying to, trying to stay high touch to clients? So that is really uh, we, uh, another thing that was kind of a huge change for us was Redtail Speak. Uh, so we're using Redtail as our CRM. Uh, Redtail Speak is basically their their compliant texting function, right? And I find a lot of clients don't love email, uh, especially some older clients. Uh, just that's not their thing. But clients of all ages seem to love to text, and I think it's great. It, it, you know, we get this uh, almost that's like a interesting. So, yeah. So your older clients are happier with text than email. Absolutely, hundred percent. Okay. So what are you? So what are you doing with Redtail Speak and texting? So on our end, it, it, it functions like a chat room. 
So basically anyone that's going to be on the team servicing that client, when that client sends us a text, it's going to be seen by every one of us. And when that person responds, the member of the team that would be handling that, it, they can see you know, who's responding. It's the same phone number, but they can see, oh, this came from Cole, or this came from John, you know, and it's all compliant on our end. So everything, you know, we're, we're within our bounds, but um, it is just such an easy way. I mean, so many clients just love shooting us that, hey, can you, can you shoot me over my, my statement from last month? You know, something quick like that. Um, and they love it. It's just it's really added uh, it's really added a, a, an efficiency on the on the communication. So that that's another small thing that just was out of reach uh, during my Merrill days. Um, the idea, if you know, people I just saw the other day, um, Wells Fargo, I think, or it was in the news. Somebody that one of the big firms was uh, in trouble again for uh, WhatsApp being used by their advisors. Um, you know, uh, so stuff like that was a really big deal. They never yeah. wanted anyone texting clients, and everybody wanted to text right. clients, but it was not compliant. So this is a that's a big a big enhancement. When is it an email and when is it a, a text message as you're as you're trying to decide which is which? Like when you're you know when you're queuing up it's time for the next meeting. Is that an email with a Calendly link or is that a text with a Calendly link? Probably an email on those. Okay. Yeah. Just setting setting meetings, those kinds of things. Usually we'll do that. People are on their on their computers. Um, but yeah, the the, the it's uh, it's not a defined this is this would be a text or that's gonna be, but if the client starts with a text, okay. then obviously we're just responding to the text. Yeah. And it's uh, it's real easy. Um, so it's a lot of that, usually the client's starting it. But sometimes we just know certain clients just hate email uh, and they like the text. Right. And so it's just knowing the client and then how do they want to be communicated with and then just using that that you know line of communication for that specific client. And then how do you, I guess, monitor it in practice? Like do inbound red tail speak texts like route to your phone, like other text messages? Do you have to be logged into red tail? Like does someone on the team have to be logged into red tail? Cause you may be in meetings all day. Like how just who, who, who sees, like, how do you feel them to make sure you actually got the, uh, the text messages? Yeah, great question. It's uh, it does come to the phone, which is uh, wonderful because I'm just out and about, and just like anything else, you know, I'm answering, you know, client, you know, questions very quickly, you know, in a compliant text on the go. Uh, where before it's like, oh, I got to sit down and draft an email, you know, let me get back to them. So yeah, it's uh, it's 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 definitely easier. It does come through the phone. Um, it comes through the uh, uh the desktop as well. So once you're logged in, it's a separate uh, uh website that you're opening to is just the red tail speak. Okay. But it, while you're it, you know, if you're sitting down, you're on your workstation, you're checking emails, you're checking that, that's super easy. So what else in this domain of client, client touch, client communication? Uh, those are probably the the big ones. I mean, we're, uh, I think you've probably heard of advice pay and, and FP Pathfinder, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know? Yeah, uh, we uh, those are both uh, awesome. Uh, I'm a pilot as well, and checklists are very comforting to pilots. So uh, I love the whole uh -huh. FP Pathfinder. Um, you know, I'm very visual. Um, another, uh, the first piece of tech, the thing that actually got me sort of uh, independence FOMO when I was still at Merrill was Asset Map. Um, you know, we didn't have anything like that, and for years I was sitting down with clients, and I'd, I'd be in an initial meeting, getting to know them you know, uh, let's uh, draw a stick figure, you know, this is you, <laughs> you know, a little circle over here. This is your IRA, you know, this is your home. Here's your, here's the debt on the home. And so asset map um, is just, it's very, again, it's very simple, uh, but it's something that clients really love. And it's really the first thing that I look at when the phone rings and it's a client, I'm pulling up their asset map. And it's the first thing I do. I just start kind of going through it. You know, I, you know, I see the house, you know, as, as the debt, you know, still the same. Has, has this changed? Has that changed? And the client, you know, is sitting there, you know, like I know all of this, you know, uh, just off the top of my head because, you know, but it's all very, it's just right there in a picture on a single page. So 
clients enjoy those. We were able to do a real quick analysis. And that's the way we bring new business in too, uh, is through the asset map uh, discovery link. You know, somebody takes five minutes to fill out that discovery link. Before I even have the phone call, I see their entire balance sheet, you know, on one page. So when I call them, I'm hitting the ground running and I'm already talking about their specific situation rather than spending that first, you know, 30 minutes just asking questions. Wait, I want to make sure I understand that. So with with prospects, you'll send them the asset map discovery link before an intro meeting to say what, like just in order for our time to be more productive, can you please fill out this link with some of your financial information? Like I'm, 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 envisioning, I'm envisioning like the doctor intake form before I get to go yep. back to see the doctor, but that's that's a disservice to asset map because asset map is beautiful. <laughs> My doctor's intake form is not, so it's probably not the, not the best analogy, but like that, that context, like please, please fill out this information in advance of our first meeting so that our meeting can be more productive. Is that is that how you how you serve it up to them? Yeah, I put it right in the calendar. So if somebody says, "Hey, we want to uh, have an initial meeting," we send the initial meeting link, and that's a thirty minute. I do a, a thirty minute just in, in, you know free intro meeting with anybody, um, and if they've taken the the time to fill out that. Uh, the asset map link, then, you know, it's a very productive 30 minutes and, and usually a very positive one. So, um, yeah, I just put it right in there. I say, if this is your first time talking with us, you know, please fill this out. And I've also found it's a very high predictor of if who's serious, <laughs> you know, people that fill that Let's out, uh, you know, you have a very good meeting with them. Yeah. It's a very high likelihood that they're going to be coming on as a client. Whereas if somebody won't even take the five minutes to fill out, you know, and, you know, a basic uh, asset map intake, you know, chances are they're, they may not be as serious okay. or ready to start talking about their planning. Okay. So it's, it's not a, it's not a requirement for them to meet you. It's a request, no. but it's a helpful request, both for the information and like the, the it, the implied indication of interest for people who are willing to share their information and go through the process in the first place. Yes, uh, exactly. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. So then where where do you use FP Pathfinder? Is that is that upfront or with ongoing or in some other context? Ongoing and our, you know, uh, something we can, I need to learn more about our, of our entire tech stack. That's probably the least utilized. I love it. And I, I love everything about it, but I feel like we're not utilizing it to its full capacity. So that's something that is on Nanette's uh, long list of, of things to get uh-huh. to eventually for our, our, our firm's sort of overarching you know, planning direction. But um, it's really been used when clients have uh, questions about something. Can I make a Roth contribution? You know, pull up the the, you know, the flow chart and kind of take them through it, you know, start asking the questions. And, you know, what I love about it is a lot of times there's things people might forget along the way. And that those, those checklists really kind of make sure you don't forget those minutia that you might've kind of forgotten along the way and, you know, uh, trip you up. But um, so right now it's more of a, uh, uh, later in the, re- in the relationship, uh, sort of an ongoing, okay. sort of a support tool that we're using. Yeah. So like it, it guide it guides the conversation when a client asks about a thing that Pathfinder has a flow chart to to take you through like can i make a roth contribution am i eligible for conversion right all, all those things that there's like a series of questions to ask and steps to move through to figure out if if they can absolutely and of course you know i think maybe our favorite piece of tech is holistic plan um those guys are just that's just a game changer uh and one of the again another really big reason that i left um the wirehouse is i felt like you know clients really need tax planning and i felt cpas are doing tax filing but not not tax planning in a lot of cases so um holistic plan really is that ultimate cyborg <laughs> you know uh, uh addition where you know we can take a tax return, run it through their system, 10 seconds later, have it spit out basically 
all of the important numbers we want to see. We see where all of the assets are. So if somebody hasn't told you about something, you can start to you know have a conversation about well, what about this account? You know, we we didn't have right. that involved the, in the discussion. The good old like I see in the declaration of interest, <laughs> a very sizable amount of interest and giving given interest rates. That would be a pretty big account that you hadn't mentioned. And like there's mm-hmm. some dividends from some mutual funds that you did not mention you have. Like let's let's talk about that. Absolutely. And that, you know, so we run Holist Plan for every single client every year. So we're just trying to get every single client to just automatically upload that tax return. And that's just going to be an annual meeting that's going to happen with every one of them. And that's probably the most important meeting we have all year because that's where we reaffirm everything with them. We talk about optimization of their, you know, current, you know, just brackets, you know, is a, a roller, is a, a conversion in, in place. I mean, they, and those guys have continued to just improve that product. Um, and I've just, we love it. So Holist Plan is now obviously, uh, you know, FP Pathfinder is now um, integrated with that too. So that's another thing I want to start to use more. Right, right. So if, you know, if clients are getting prompted to do a Roth conversion, Holist Plan, you can pull up a flow chart to, to talk them through it on the spot. So, exactly. so I, I am curious, I, I am curious in that context, though, just, I mean, I, I've seen this for advisors, both in, in the context of, of FP Pathfinder, and just in, in general, like, some of us really like to pull out visual aids that help sort of show, show the process to the clients walk them through it. Others don't like it. It's like, well, clients expecting me just to have all these answers. Like, I don't want to I don't want to like show them the cheat sheet of how I'm figuring out the answer. Like I'm just supposed to have the answer, uh, uh, right? Like not right or wrong. Just we 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 come to it from different ways. So I guess I'm just I'm just curious or trying to understand like how do you think about pulling like pulling a guide out like that in the meeting versus being the one to give them the answer in the meeting. I'm a very visual learner myself. So for me, I, I just think it's such a nice thing for you to be able to show somebody and kind of take them through that, especially if they're they're also more of a visual learner. Um, you know, to your point about like, you know, you want them to think you're smart. You know, I think early in my career, like, you know, we always wanted to have the answer. You know, you always wanted them to think that you were really smart yes. and knew all these things. As I've gotten through my career, I find that's not that important. You know, people don't really care that you know the answer right off the bat. They just want to make sure that you get the thing done right. And so um, taking something like that out and walking them through step by step, you know, number one affirms that I'm not making a mistake. And then they they understand it much more. It just it just creates a, a much deeper level of comfort. And and this annual, I guess, annual holistic plan analysis, but I think you said like an annual meeting for clients. What when do you do that as soon as they can get us their tax return. So again, it's just kind of uh, on the client, you know. And and right now we're kind of getting the fire hose again because a lot of people have gotten their taxes done and have questions now. It's the first thing we're going to ask for. But California, a lot of the uh, uh, counties we were extended to October this year. So this year's a little weird because some people aren't going to file for a little bit later. Uh, but it's usually just as soon as they get them done. And in a in an ideal world, we would actually have a relationship with the CPA where the CPA just uploads it for us. Um, in some cases, we have a CPA that works with many of our clients and we just have a um, like a tax dome, you know, a portal kind of a thing where we can just send uh, you know, uh, sensitive documents back and forth with the CPA. So as much as we can kind of partner with their CPA and take that off of the client's uh, shoulders, I know Holistic Plan was working to allow us to pull like three years going back and two years going forward or, or something like that. And I know that they, they hit pause on that because the client experience wasn't up to snuff, but that's very exciting to me. If they will allow us to do that, where the client will sign once and allow us to just pull the transcripts, um, yeah. The, a, the, a the dream is like, how do we get IRS transcripts yes. with like a reasonable IRS API that makes it not painful? <laughs> Looks like they're close. Yeah, they're getting they're getting close. 
So, so I guess in practice, because some clients file early, some clients file on tax deadline, sometimes clients file for extension and get it done a little later, sometimes clients file for extension and then do it the day before the extension. Like you don't really end out with a, it sounds like at least you, you don't end out with the surge of these, like, okay, it's May or it's November, like time to crank out 180 holistic plans <laughs> in the big old refined process. Like in practice for you, it's, it's basically dribbling out over the span of about six months just because different clients are all over the place on their tax return timing over the span of six plus months. Yeah, and you have to anyway. It's just it's, it, you don't have the time in the day to do all of them in, in one week. So it's good that they do kind of get spread out. So then what else What else are on the service model? What is what is planning software for you? Are, are you solely and fully in asset map as visualizations and planning? Or do you have a separate planning software that you use as well? We do. We do actually. Uh, um, so we're based, uh, we're using Orion for record keeping and everything. That's sort of our core. Uh, and they keep getting bigger, obviously, and, and acquiring more companies uh, themselves. But Orion is, they had their own planning software, uh, which was Advisor before yep. that they had acquired, put in there. So that's what we launched with. And we were using that. We're still using that for our portal. So if clients, you know, where they can access their statements, um, you know, all of the, you know, performance, the, the all of those things still run through their, that sort of advisor portal. Um, when Nanette came in, though, she had experience with uh, Right Capital. I had seen Right Capital. I was, I always thought they were great. Uh, I thought it was one of the better ones out there, if not the best one out there for what we're doing for clients. Um, and she had experience with it. And that was one of the big things I was excited about. So when Nanette came to join us, um, we made the switch and we added uh, uh, Right Capital. So yeah, that's now our, our core planning. Yeah, well, because Right Capital was long included as part of the XY Planning Network membership. I know Nanette was an XY Planning Network for a period of time. So probably got got familiar there and then and then brought it forward. So what you said, like Right Capital, you feel like is particularly good for your your clientele and what you do. So what what makes Right Capital better fit for you than the than the alternatives out there? Like what what makes it such a good click for you? Well, actually, and to be candid, most of that's handled by the the planner. So the gentleman that was here before and now Nanette, they're the ones kind of living in there, you know, and, and that's okay. really the focus for that. So for me as a business owner, I want to supply my team with the best tech that they, you know, with that they want. And so when I met with Nanette and she was coming in, she was basically, you know, she said, that's the, you know, the best one. She had the experience with it. And I was like, Hey, I don't, I don't want to spend the next year learning a new software. So wonderful, <laughs> you know, so the, you know, to be, to be candid, she's really the one in right capital, you know, living in yeah. there and sort of presenting to us before a meeting, you know, and, and kind of going over everything. Then when we meet with the client, everyone's on the same page. Uh, but I'm not really in there doing too many, um, too many clicks personally. Um, okay. And she's found with some people lately that, you know, they've had some, some income planning needs that have kind of gotten beyond what right capital could do. So we've actually just added something called uh, income lab, uh, which is another one. So yep. we, we uh, yeah, so she's, she's really enjoying that so far. We're, we're going to start to implement that with more clients that have more complex uh, income planning needs. For, for uh, that's on the retirement income side, like how am I doing my distribution yeah. drawdown planning work? Absolutely. Very cool. Very cool. So, uh, so then how does the client concierge role fit into all of this for the, for you, for the business? 
so when, when I started for the longest time, it was really just me and, you know, in the Merrill days, they called him a client associate or a CA. So, you know, Jen and I worked together in that sort of advisor or CA role for a long time. And I think clients really get used to that. You know, this is the person I talk to my, about my investments. This is the person I talk to about the administrative side, if I need anything else done. So I knew that clients were comfortable with that. But I knew that we had to add the sort of planning coordinator role as that interim role. So though I see the client concierge role as a career support role, okay? Somebody that comes in that doesn't want to go into production, somebody that wants to serve clients, that enjoys that relationship and wants to work with clients, um, you know, for, for many years going forward. And then that's going to be a, you know, a salaried position, potentially, you know, salary plus bonus kind of a position, whereas the planning coordinator role, that's really a role that I want somebody to come into that really wants to learn the business and become an advisor down the road. You know, somebody that's, that's looking to get their CFP, wants to, you know, service their own clients and, and learn that business from the, the ground up. So that's really a three to five year sort of a transition role where they go from, you know, sort of working directly with the client concierge on a daily basis as the support team, but then moving up into that uh, production role later on and, and, you know, somebody else coming in to, to uh, train underneath them. So um, the client concierge is really that, that, that point of contact. Uh, every one of our clients, uh, you know, is basically friends with Jen. They all, they know her personal life. She knows theirs. Uh, you know, they're very comfortable calling in, um, always asking yeah. about how she's doing, these kind of that- things. That's her gift. She has one of those folks yes. that's great at, at having rapport with with uh, uh, with clients when they call in. Yes, extremely gregarious. Everybody, you know, loves chatting with her. It's just, you know, it's just something you can't replace, something mm-hmm. you can't train. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that that's the client concierge role, and and uh, um, really just where that person, everybody knows they can call in if they need to get something taken care of in the account. I know that she's spent many hours in the last week, you know, just making phone calls back over to Merrill Lynch to try and help clients figure out uh, some um, uh, class action lawsuit uh, that came out, you know, and, and, you know, they they get these, you know, things, is this going to pay me anything? Is it, is it worth my time? You know, is it fraud? You know, all these questions. And so she spends a lot of time trying to figure those answers out for people. So then she can reach out to everybody and let them know, Hey, you probably got this in the mail, Um, you know, and then we can be proactive and let people know. So they don't have, you know, try and take things off their plate. So this this isn't necessarily in the domain of like other extra services that get piled on. Like just I, I mean I've seen some advisory firms that you know their version of concierge is like this is a separate role with a whole bunch of additional services that you know only our A clients get where we're going to do these extra things for them with the client concierge. That's not the context for you here. This is high touch to all clients across the firm, centralized point of contact that you have a relationship with. Besides advisor directly, because sometimes you're in meetings all day and you can't get back to them as quick. <laughs> yeah, we probably, and this may not be the brightest thing to do. I don't know if this is the right way to do it, but we treat our biggest client the same as we treat our smallest client. And I know that that's not what other firms do it. And I've got you know clients that are you know sweet little old ladies who were widowed many years ago, and they're well below you know, a minimum that we would have set, you know, but I'm never going to send them away and I'm never going to, you know, not treat them, you know, as, as if they were, you know, any other client because they are the ones that need it, you know, probably more so. Uh, and, and you can hear it for certain people, just how, how appreciative they are that you are, you know, taking that extra time with them. So yeah, we, we don't, we don't, you know, we probably, I, I know I used to listen to all these guys, oh, you should fire your fault, you know, smallest three clients every year and, you know, make room for these, you know, your new large clients and whatnot. So I know from a revenue perspective, it may not be the brightest idea, but you know, I sleep good at night, uh, you know, and I, I feel good about what we, what we do for our clients. 
throughout the year, if, if, if my staff comes to me and says somebody's not treating them with the utmost respect, that, that person's gone. Um, that's just a commitment I made a long time ago. Um, you got to protect your team, you know, and, and sometimes people will kick the dog, you know, because they can, and that's just not okay. You know, it's just, you gotta, you gotta treat people with respect, but thankfully it, it rarely ever happens. Um, you know, I mean, almost never. So, you know, our clients by and large are just really nice people, but you know, sometimes you catch people on a bad day, you know, and it's a one-off, but if somebody's sort of habitually, as you say, a, a PETA, <laughs> uh, you know, they got to go. So help us understand as well. You mentioned earlier, like one of the, one of the positive uptakes with the attorney COI introduction is, is that you're, you know, you're supporting clients on, on crypto and doing it through trust. So it makes their um, estate planning lives a little easier. But as I'm sure, you know, like a lot of advisors are not doing anything in the crypto domain, even some that I think we're looking at it decided not to over the past year or two is uh, uh, Bitcoin got a little bit more volatile to the downside. So like share with us more, what are, what are you doing in the, in the crypto realm with clients at this point? Absolutely. And thank you. Yeah, it was one of the other reasons, the big reasons that I decided to, to leave the comforts that I had at, at Merrill was just that the big firms um, are going to be sort of uh, kept out of that market until there's regulation. I actually thought we might get regulation this year with uh, Gary Gensler, the, the chairman of the SEC, because yep. he actually he taught a course on blockchain uh, at MIT, which is actually free online. You can just watch an MIT course kind of cool. Um, but I thought he was going to be the guy to come in and do it. He's taken a different route of sort of suing Coinbase and Binance. Um, and so it doesn't look like we're going to get regulation, which arguably is a good thing for myself because we are sort of in a position where I think we got a year or two now where we're really the only game in town to do this. And as I'm talking to these estate planning attorneys over and over, every one of them has said that they have not heard of anybody else that's doing this. So um, I think it's a, a limited time, but where we can really get ahead of, of this uh, um, this particular movement. So uh, I got my uh, certificate in blockchain and digital assets uh, through DACFP, which is Rick Edelman and, and Don Friedman's uh, company. Rick Edelman, of course, you know, uh, <laughs> grew the largest RA in the world, uh, Edelman's Financial Engines. Uh, so uh, clearly a successful guy. And he sort of dedicated his whole career to the digital asset space. So I went with his um, uh accreditation, if you will, or, or certificate. And they literally about a week ago, they just got uh, listed with FINRA. So it's now the CBDA, which is the Certificate in Blockchain and Digital Assets. Uh, I, I got that myself and I actually paid for every one of my employees to get it because I think it's so important that people be able to speak this language. Um, whether a client ever owns these things or not is secondary, um, but they need to at least know what it is. Uh, and when I was working at a larger firm, they their uh, position was basically you couldn't even discuss it uh, just because they're, they can't do anything with it. They can't touch it. So I felt that that regulatory um, restriction was going to be a really big hurdle for those big firms. So um, I think we got a long, a long road here. I think we're early in this in this game. Um, blockchain, I think, like the internet, um, the internet doesn't get better, but the websites on it do. And I think yep. that uh, blockchain is blockchain, but you know the applications, you know, the cryptocurrencies are the current. But I think there's a lot of other applications, like things like voting. Um, you know, I believe that blockchain will reduce the cost of trust, <laughs> you know, anywhere that you see a cost of trust, like when you're buying a house, you know, you got to pay for title insurance, things like that. I think yeah. that the blockchain is going to clean up a lot of that stuff eventually once people get their head around it. Uh, but for now, I, it's, it's uh, estate planning attorneys that, you know, they have to create LLCs to hold these assets and then they put that LLC in the name of the trust. There's a lot of workarounds because 
um, where you transact, like a Coinbase, you know, it's not like a, um, uh, a Schwab or a, you know, a TD Ameritrade, someplace like that, where if somebody passes away, you can reach out to them and give them a death certificate, right? You know, my dad passed away. I need to, I need to get a hold of this account. Yeah. That money is just lost, right? It's, it, if the family even knew that they had it, you know, they probably wouldn't know how to get it unless dad, you know, gave them his, his you know, secret code to get in there. Because if he didn't, that money is effectively just like bearer bonds under the sink, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we're, you know, I, I'm old enough that when I started in the industry, uh, we had stock certs. A lot of clients would literally come in for the first meeting oh, and yeah. bring me a box of stock certs. <laughs> and uh, Jen, I, you know, <laughs> I remember I, I started, I started about the same time we had, we had one client couple. I still remember like they had been buying stock certs for literally decades and like for a year and a half, they just kept bringing in more stock certificates. <laughs> like, they would bring in, they're like, I think this is all of them. And then they go home and we see them three to six months later. And like, we found a few more and we deposit them. Like, we found a few more and then we deposit them. And, and like, cumulatively, they ended out with something like a million and a half dollars. <laughs> I mean, this Gosh. was 23 years ago. That th This was when a $100,000 account was a good client. Yeah. Uh, they were like a $1.5 million client. It was all stocks. They had no idea. That they were, they were worth that much because they literally just their retirement was they just spent dividend checks when they came in and they had so much wealth that the dividend checks were more than enough to cover their bills. So they never even tried to consolidate it before. Uh, so yeah, stock stock cert world was a was a crazy world. <laughs> but I think that's where we are today in the digital asset space. You know, I think that people are yeah. doing uh, self custody for the most part, and there's a lot of risks involved with that. But there's no other option. And the idea, if you asked a client right now, do you want to hold your own stock certs or would you like to hold them, you know, at a custodian? I mean, it's 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 not even a question, right? Right. So right. I think as we as this option becomes more available to people. Um, and they understand that this is going to be something that's going to, people are going to want because right now, if, if it could trigger probate, uh, a lot of people are not doing any sort of you know, tax management. I think a lot of people have been transacting too in these, and they've created taxable transactions along the way they've never um, reported. And I think that pretty soon here, you know, eventually they're going to get those records from the Coinbase's of the world, and everybody uh -huh. that has transactions is going to get audited if they have not been filing yeah. that because. First question on the the 1040 the last couple of years has been, do you own or have you transacted in cryptocurrencies? So, right. you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum are both, you know, sort of known quantities as real property as far as the IRS is concerned. They've taxed it that way. So, as you mentioned, some people were getting a little leery about getting involved. But I think that, you know, in those two specific securities, uh, they're a little bit, you know, more of a known quantity. There's a lot of other stuff right now with, uh, you know, uh, Things that are the crossing the line as far as banking products, staking, you know, that kind of stuff's pretty messy right now. But as far as just a client owning Bitcoin or Ethereum, it's pretty straightforward. So help me understand then what you're like what you're literally investing clients into. Cause I mean, you you you've talked about, right, like cryptocurrencies directly, like um Bitcoin, Ethereum. You were you were mentioning earlier, right? Like the opportunities of blockchain, which function like you don't buy blockchain per se, like you by shares of companies that are building an application to run on the blockchain. So what like what are you investing clients into? The direct tokens. Yeah. To me that was the uh, I, I interviewed a lot of companies and looked at a lot of options. Right now, if a client wants to buy uh Bitcoin, let's say they can buy the you know, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, or they can. There's a bunch of these funds out there that are basically futures funds, 
right? And so, as you know, if you want to buy a gold fund, you want to buy a spot fund. You want to buy the actual underlying asset. You know, uh, futures have all kinds of problems, as you know, and they can, you know, get all, you know, haywire. So right now, there is no spot ETF. Um, the big news a couple of weeks ago was that, you know, BlackRock has uh, applied for one. They're the largest ETF, you know, company out there. So that uh, Bitcoin got like a $5,000 pop just on that news. And I think that's going to open the door for a lot more people to come in when that spot ETF shows up. But right now that doesn't even exist yet. And so clients that are buying, if they want to own Bitcoin and Ethereum, they have to go to uh, you know somewhere to buy that, like a Coinbase or a Binance US, someplace that they can get that Gemini and then effectively hold that in what's called a hot wallet. It's connected to the internet. It could be uh, hacked. You know, they could lose that money. Very wild west uh, over there. So, and then in most cases, people are not doing any sort of tax trading on that. There are no wash sale rules on digital assets currently. So you could sell Bitcoin for a loss, buy it back five minutes later, and you don't have a problem. So we're actually using a TAMP. Uh, we found, I, I went to a meeting out in the um, in Arizona and met with a bunch of, it was like a one-on-one that DACFP had kind of put together. Uh, and I met the guys from Eaglebrook Advisors. And so they're basically a digital TAMP, uh, turn, you know, turnkey asset management platform. Yep. Um, and they offer direct investment uh, in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And the client is buying the actual underlying coin, but then they're holding that in, in cold storage, which means it's basically an air-gapped computer. It's, it's not connected to the, the internet and it re- substantially reduces the risk of theft. So if we can reduce the risk of theft, we can get it into trust name or IRA titling so that it passes you know, along, you know, to, to their heirs along their, you know, with their estate plan. And we can create basically tax efficiencies all through last year, obviously, where you had these you know, volatility, you know, you know, tax loss harvesting on a stock side. We do that through uh, custom indexing, uh, which we can get into. But um, on the digital asset side, same thing with no wash sale rule. So, so they are, we can do 100% Bitcoin, 100% Ethereum, a blend of those two. Uh, and now um, I see Global X actually is coming out with their own SMA, which is a, a basically a 10 coin layer two coin portfolio, which is very exciting to me because that's the next thing. You know, as people all start to get their head around, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, what these things are, what the value propositions are, then people start moving to the next layer. You know, oh, th- there's better coins already. Okay, well, let's look at those. So yeah, it's a, it's an evolution. I think we're in the maybe second or third inning of this game. And, and what what is the cost for for going through this like just eagle brook has a tamp layer cost are there what does that look like are there other costs that underlie this like how how does it work from an expenses perspective they do so you're going to have you know your advisory fees you know to the firm you know that they're always there on any assets if that's the if it's an uh, aum relationship but then you've got your uh, platform fee and then there's a very small transaction fee uh, when they actually do uh, it's very small but those are really all the costs and when you total it up it's actually still less than if the client were to go out and just buy you know GBTC, <laughs> um, you know the, the big players. This this such an uh, such an illiquid market, I guess. Uh, that you know the fees just to get access to the coin in a in a uh, futures fund is about two yeah. percent per year. So, and and what does it add up to in Eagle Brook? Uh, it's going to be less than two. I think it's like one and a half. I need to actually pull up what it is. I think it's uh, about one and a half on the platform. Okay. Which, yeah. Um, all told, it's not cheap. It's it's going to be more expensive than if you're trying to get like an S and P. You know, exposure obviously where you have well, yeah, you know, yeah, where we can market, get yeah. our you know super cheap ETF for a couple of bips, but okay. inexpensive for the uh, dig- digital asset options right. that are out there. Yeah, and so how how much of an allocation do you put to this? 
So that's, you know, Rick Edelman's big thing. They did a lot of work on that. That was a big part of their, um, their, their work that they did for the advisors is they came up with a 1% allocation recommendation, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, and so that's really where we're starting. If clients are saying, hey, I really do want to sort of dip my toe in, I want, I'm interested in this space, we can have a discussion about it. We can build a 1% position uh, for a client like that. And when you know Bitcoin is up 70 plus percent year to date as it is so far you know, this year, that 1% can make a, a meaningful impact on the client. We would let that run to about a 5% position then probably start paring it down. So that's kind of how we're starting off. Um, 1% positions for clients. Now, if somebody's obviously has the, you know, the wealth and the ability to take on the aspirational risk and uh, right. they, they're more tech savvy, then, you know, we can, we can push that a little yeah. higher. Uh, but generally well, starting with a 1% allocation, assuming that it could go to zero and you're not going to hurt the client because it is such a new technology. Well, I was going to ask, like on, on the one hand, I get it, you know, 1% is small enough that, you know, if, if, if crypto has a catastrophic catastrophic loss like we're not destituting anybody we're not over concentrating yes. them here by yeah. by any stretch but at the same time like you know whole other tamp relationship whole other structure i'm assuming there's some additional paperwork and stuff that's got to get done like you know it just is it a challenge to justify the the cost the time the hassle just like the administrative overhead that i'm imagining you have to deal with for a, a quote-unquote just one percent position for clients <laughs> Well, um, for me, it's not just because this is such a big focus that I have and, you know, being able to, you know, we're going to grow with this too. I'm sure the process will get better. It does take about two weeks, it seems, to kind of get the whole thing set up and started. It's not an instantaneous process by any means. Yeah. Um, but once it's up and running, I mean, then the clients are very comfortable and it's very easy for them if they want to move money between those. So, so does every, like, does every client get, because this is a, like a standard model thing for you that just, this is part of the the holdings we own on behalf of clients, or is this still a one client conversation at a time? Are you interested in this? If so, let me talk to you about it a little bit. And and like each clients are either yay or yay or nay, and you got a list of each. Yeah, basically, I, I had sent out an email to all clients once we were set up and able to do this, which took longer than I wanted, um, which was actually a blessing because last year was such a bad year for uh, crypto assets. But um, once we finally got up and running, I basically just put it out there, all the clients that this is something we can do. Uh, if it's something they want to talk about, they have any interest at all, just book time with me. Uh, and if it's something that we want to go forward with, we'll do that. So it's not an asset that I think I would recommend to anybody if they didn't first sort of ask me about it. First of all, you know, it's nothing that people need to have, but um, it's, I think it's something that is very interesting to people. They want to be able to talk about it with somebody that understands how it works with their traditional assets. Um, and that's, that's important for people. A lot of people already have it. You know, a lot of people are, are what I'm really trying to do this for first and foremost is de-risking the risk that people are already taking around these assets. So if somebody's already made a purchase and they own, you know, some some Bitcoin or Ethereum and it's in a hot wallet and they're not doing any uh, tax, you know, uh, trading around it or filing or, you know, and they haven't told their kids, you know, how to get a hold of this asset. So the, many people already have it and they've taken the risk of owning the underlying asset. We're just trying to de-risk some of the, the tertiary risks around that. And And in practice, like, just do you have a sense what percentage of clients have have taken you up on this? I mean, there are, are most clients in, or is it like a coin flip 50, 50? Is it still a pretty <laughs> no, small percentage? It's a small percentage for sure. It's uh, I think it's going to grow as, as more clients come in. As I mentioned, a lot of my clients are retirees. You know, it's really would be inappropriate for most of that 
group of clients anyway. Uh, a lot of them are just comfortably living off the income that they get from their portfolio. Uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum is just like in their minds, maybe a Ponzi scheme or, you know, you know, something like yeah. that. They just, you know, they have no interest at all. It yeah. wouldn't, it wouldn't make them feel better to have it in their portfolio. Um, but I have other clients. Uh, one client was running his own mining node, you know, I mean, and, yeah. you know, he, he was very concerned that his daughter's not going to know how to get this asset um, if something happened to him and he's going to, he's going to be bringing his uh, Ethereum over uh, for us to hold and, you know, start paying us an advisory fee and, you know, on a platform fee to hold it because, you know, he sees the benefits you know, outweighing those costs uh, for that way. So, oh, interesting. For so, yeah. So the appeal for him is just right when you when you live in a world of running running crypto and trying to keep it secure for yourself in a self custody world. Like, ideally, you want to keep it in cold storage, disconnected from anything, only accessible by a super secret password. And if you get hit by a bus and don't have a way to transmit that information, like mm-hmm. that's gone for your family. Yeah. As as you said, like the the bearer bonds that get lost into the sink. So, so the appeal for him was basically like what, what you can bring to the table through Eagle Brook, we can still hold in cold storage for you. Uh, but it's in a trust structure that is still transferable because then you can transfer it to the uh, beneficiaries and with successor trustees. So you don't risk having it vanish or lose control. Hundred percent, and then um, Eaglebrook Advisors is integrated with Orion, so basically their their digital holdings show up right on their statement from us. Um, you know, their Bitcoin and Ethereum is right there next to their Apple and their their Google stock. And and then just do you wor- do you worry about the you know the 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 liability risk exposure right just because of the the lack of regulations, some of the fraud that. Is now at least being alleged and and unearthed with some of the the players that have been out there, right? I mean, I know at the core, like a lot of the big firms don't want to move into the space because it's not regulated, because they don't want the liability exposure of being in a space that's so uh, uh, wild west, as you framed it. Just does that worry you as an advisory firm owner? How do you get comfortable with that? Um, I left to start my firm so I could provide this to people. So for me, I'm very comfortable with it um, um, personally. And because we do such a small position size for people, literally it could go to zero and they wouldn't have, you know, it's a bad day. You know, I mean, it's, it's yeah. not, it's not going to affect them in that way. So that's why I have a lot of comfort around it. Cause we're really treating it with kid gloves that it, this is, this is a very highly volatile, you know, space. But I do feel like, you know, diversification, especially last year being the worst year in 150 years for the 60-40 portfolio, you know, we own commodities, um, which of course, the only way to own the commodities is in a, is in a futures fund, uh, which we is the only thing that made money last year and helped us with our, our relative performance. But I believe that digital assets, uh, crypto assets are sort of the, the first new asset class really since crude oil. I, you know, and, and that to me is very exciting as a money manager that you can have a non-correlated, highly volatile asset that you can add to a portfolio and tax loss harvest you know, along the way. So it doesn't have to make the portfolio even more volatile. In fact, uh, as you know, a, a volatile asset of a certain size can actually reduce the risk of a portfolio. So I, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about the regulatory aspect. I did think that we were going to get um, uh, regulation in the wake of the FTX debacle last year because, you know, Sam... Sam, you know, Bankman-Fried could not have committed such theft if he was in an industry that was regulated. But what happens is everybody thinks that crypto itself is is crooked or or illegal because of they see that kind of stuff happening. Right, but right, they right. simply wouldn't have been, yeah, they couldn't have done, they couldn't have done that, you know. <laughs> he was working out of an apartment in the Bahamas for goodness sake. I mean, you know, yeah, so yeah. 
the crypto world is still has a long way to go on that. But for me, transacting, you know, in a small position in Ethereum and blockchain and, and, and Bitcoin, which I believe uh, is sort of known quantities now, uh, as far as the IRS goes, that I'm, I'm comfortable there. I'm not going to be doing any staking or, you know, buying, uh, you know, yeah. uh, uh, meme coins for anybody or anything like that. But I do see in a couple of years as the big firms all start to finally be able to come into, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum, we're going to be way ahead of that, you know, at that point and doing something, you know, you know, that's cutting edge at that point uh, when they're finally getting in. So I'm, I'm actually very excited about it. And that risk that you're referring to is also what keeps all of those firms out of this space and creates all that opportunity for me. So, so then how does custom indexing fit into this you you'd noted that you're you're working in that space as well so we use uh, uh it's uh, Andy Rosenberger and his his team over at uh, uh, Orion custom indexing or we say OCI <laughs> we uh, you know acronyms for everything but um, they've yep. been amazing uh, and so we pretty much got uh, you know dialed in with those guys you know before 2022 and last year the alpha that was created through custom indexing was phenomenal. I mean, I don't even know the exact number. They they wouldn't even publish it. Was I think they were shooting for like a one to three you know percent like alpha or added you know added benefit you know on an annual. From, I think last year was like north of like nine or something like that for, for because of the tax loss harvesting. Yes, for like individual position tax loss harvesting. We actually had a client bring us all cash, about nine hundred thousand, all cash to invest. Um, younger client, he wanted to put it all to work right away, um, right at the beginning of twenty twenty two. Okay, so the, the peak of the market. Um, and then we went through the whole last year. On that 900,000, I think we generated about 170,000 in realized losses. Um, and the portfolio is almost back to even today from where it was. So everybody else in the world just kind of held their ETFs down. They're holding them back up. And we were able to go in there and, and add tangible benefit for clients across the board in such a, such a sell-off year. And so, and so the the custom indexing, the direct indexing world for you, like, is it mostly that it's it's a tax loss harvesting story, not necessarily a sort of taking the word literally, like, it's not necessarily a custom indexing, like you're crafting your own client specific client personalized indices. This is a tax loss harvesting story for you. Well, it's both actually. Uh, the thing is, okay. the the irony is that you know ESG became somehow you know villainized, <laughs> you know, over the last uh, you know year yeah. or so. And and I actually had clients calling me like angry. I had one client. She goes, "What is ESG?" She was so mad, and I explained it to her, and she's like, "Oh." Okay, that's just you know being able to invest in what you want to invest in, you know. So you know, <laughs> uh-huh. it, it used to be a big selling point to tell people like this, you know, we can do you know ESG. Now everyone's like, oh, that's what is that, you know? So yes, uh, custom indexing that was one of the initial benefits. If we're going to deconstruct an index uh, and and you know use individual stocks, you get the best of both worlds, right? Um, when I started in the business, you had to be a stock picker to get those right. benefits. Stock picking kind of went away as markets got more efficient. Everybody's either in or out with uh, exchange-traded funds, which then, of course, are horrible from a tax efficiency standpoint. So, um, yeah, um, th- for us, it's uh, we will definitely have an intake form, you know, and we, act- we have the client sort of go through, is there an industry that you'd like us not to invest in? Is there a specific individual stock? Do you work for a company where you're an insider? You know, sort of, we ask a lot of questions about that so we can basically build them a custom uh, index. So, um, Interesting. yeah, is that, yeah, a, yeah. is that an intake form you developed or is that something that Orion custom indexing like give, gives you? We developed it. Yeah. We just, yeah, okay. we created it over time. Uh, we were using, um, it was precise FP. That's a, that's one of the, uh, uh, platforms that we're not currently using because we actually had, you know, we were doing other ways, other ways to get those out to people, but, um, yeah, that's, uh, that intake form, um, to get those, 
those those restrictions if people do want to, which sometimes they do. Um, but the tax the tax loss harvesting was was just so impactful last year, and that was really the the, the big bang for the buck. So some clients will end up with a like an, an actual customized, and others will just own the index, but own it in the direct indexing component parts, so you can do the tax loss harvesting benefits. Yeah, and we default to a uh, a global index, and that's uh, their default is about two hundred and twenty five individual securities. So if somebody doesn't want so many individual securities for whatever reason, uh, but this is another thing that you know when we launched, um, you know, it's one of the reasons I left because we we didn't have this capability, and I thought custom indexing was was kind of a game changer, and I felt like it was going to cannibalize the the ETF market over the next decade. But then, you know, Schwab went to zero commissions, uh, you know, and then uh, yeah. then it became a very very attractive you know white paper idea when you're not paying any commissions and you can trade you know a, as yeah. necessary. So yeah, so last year was a standout year for the benefit. And and so is this? Do you direct index the the whole portfolio? Is this like a sleeve, an allocation, or like the large cap holding? You know, is covered with this, but then you own other funds and ETFs around it. Like, how much of the portfolio is executed in this manner? Yeah, and we have we basically have two different ways. So, if a client is a, a tax deferred account, if it's an IRA, Roth IRA, and they don't have any um, ESG sort of uh, you know requirements, we're generally going to do an ETF portfolio um, because you know the tax efficiency is not a concern, their customization is not a concern. It's going to be a lot right. easier for us to manage that portfolio, and so we're buying the large, mid, small, you know, foreign, uh, domestic, all of that in an ETF model portfolio that we run. But in a, a, a account where we're going to use the uh, custom indexing, it's generally going to be a taxable account. Uh, and it's generally going to be representative of the entire equity portion of that client's account because we can get foreign, you know, domestic, large, mid, small through the individual equities that uh, um, Orion is going to be, you know, handling the daily trading on. Okay, and and so and so almost in like a variability of asset location environment, like how how much of the client ends up being direct indexed or not is really ends up being a function of the the mix of taxable versus retirement assets that they've got. True. And then in, in IRAs, we will still do direct indexing for clients that uh, you know ESG is a concern. If they want us to block right, certain right, parts right. of the market, we would definitely use it for that. Um, but it does get to some pretty large statements, <laughs> you know, uh, where you're if you're holding that many securities uh, and the client's got to be comfortable with that going in, you know, uh, and they have to understand that. Well I was going to ask again like, any any complaints from accountants who have to handle the 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 tax reporting when when they hold that many individual positions thankfully not yet uh, hopefully everyone's just dropping that into a uh, an electric you know electronic uh, solution and they're not uh, actually yeah, yeah, manually yeah. typing in things anymore but i have had some client uh, some you know sort of old school cpas still complain about the number of transactions going on but I understand if somebody's churning, but if there's zero commissions and you're you're literally the only trades that are happening is to generate a tax loss, you know, I, hopefully the CPA is going to see the the value there. Yeah, and and then what's the what's the cost for this? Like, I'm assuming Orion Custom Indexing has some cost layer like other yeah, like, and estimates that you've got to handle on top of this. They're like 15 basis points. It's amazing. Yeah, it's been. I mean, fully customized. We've just had such an amazing experience with them. They've just done such a great job, and it's uh, it's it's you know uh, on par with a an S and P five hundred, you know, uh, uh, ETF. I mean, yeah, it's it's just amazing. Uh, We we couldn't have been we couldn't be happier. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of people have reached out. Yeah, and then you don't have any under underlying costs like you're you're buying the stock. It's not like you've got a a manager fee on top of another layer. 
And then and from, doing that stuff, that that trading in house, like as you know, James does all of our uh, our daily trades, right? We have a, a primary trader on staff here, but you know, him being in there doing the custom indexing would be, I mean, that's not, it's a non-starter. I mean, these guys, they have a whole right. team over there. They're in there every day um, handling that. And it's just, it's, it's such an amazing value for what we're able to bring to people. So it's, it's been a great, uh, a great experience on that. Yeah. I was going to tell you too, the, the one, one thing we do too is Pontera. Uh, if you're familiar with them, that's uh, another yep. huge game changer. When I left Merrill, you know, so many clients would ask me to, to help them with their 401k. And I literally would have to tell them, don't email me these questions because my, <laughs> my, ma- you know, my manager is going to tell me I can't respond right. because we don't, we don't hold this account. So, you know, when I left, it was, it was just a game changer that literally if a client's like, Hey, I've got a 401k over here. I would like you to handle it. We can just go through Pontera. We literally just get, they, we send them an email. They put in their username and password. We don't see that information, but then they are granting us access uh, and, and basically assigning us as manager on that account for them. Now we're actively managing that in conjunction with the rest of their their household, which is what so many clients want. I find about thir- a third of our clients are generally full delegators, and they want that, and it, you know they would they would appreciate that. So for us, being able to actively do that, get paid for the work that we're doing, not have to you know go covert and you know call the client on the phone and, and you know verbally you know try and help them with an account that they're that they're asking for help with. So that's another I'd say a really big you know, game changer for us being able to do business uh, the right way and getting rid of a conflict of interest. I mean, so many people, as you know, I mean, there's so much, you know, work in the industry to get advisors to, you know, do the right thing on a rollover because the conflict of interest is so high. The advisor wants to do the business. The client wants them to help with that account, but then the conflict is that they've got to roll it over. And maybe that rollover is not what is in the best interest of the client. And I'd say in most cases, it's not. Well, especially while they're still working. So, yeah, that's been a that's been a huge enhancement. So, how do you handle the the cost layer for these? Right, like you've got, you know, there there's uh, Eagle Brook's got a cost for its piece. Uh, Orion Custom Indexing has a cost for its piece. Pantera has their own own charge. Like, are do you absorb these out of your fee schedule? Do you like just pass them through the client, and let them play, pay? Is it a mix and match? You absorb some and not the others. Like just. How do you handle the the kind of the cost layers that we have to deal with when you've got your advisory fee, but all these various platforms and solutions have their own fee layers in the middle? Absolutely. So for Pontera, we eat it because it's basically, you know, there's a cost for the client to be able to sign us. We just get paid less for doing it. It's the right business. It's the, it's the, it's just, we eat that. Um, on the other ones like uh, Orion, uh, that's just, we look at that like an ETF cost. That's just an investment cost, which we're going to try and keep that as low as we can for the client, but that's still going to get passed on to the client at the end of the day. Um, and they're aware of that. You know, the, There's the advisory fee, the advice, and then there's investment costs, of course, which we'll try and keep low. Um, and then, of course, if a client does want to do something like an Eagle Brook, that's going to be a separate standalone, very small part of the portfolio for anybody that's even doing it, though. So the costs there are so minute. Um, you know, the co- It's a cost on a 1% piece of the portfolio. So it's generally a, a pretty, pretty small uh, line item there. So you... So you let them hold on to the Orion Custom Indexing and Eagle Brook costs because it's kind of like paying a mutual fund or an ETF manager anyways. You absorb the Pontera cost because it's more like a an platform internal fee. trading cost or like a platform fee that you're just have to have to eat as a business in order to provide the service that you're trying to provide. Exactly. Interesting. And and so is there a difference in 
fee schedules for what you do and manage accounts internally versus for how do I 401ks that you manage with Pontera? Or is it just you live like an assets under advisory uh, framework where it's just the same fee for all of it across the board? We have our our, uh, um, our our published fee schedule. We're basically the first, you know, tranche is, is at a, a, the top rate. And then as more assets are consolidated, you know, that rate will drop. And so we we just look at the assets that are held at uh, in 401ks. It could be, it doesn't have to be a 401k. It could be uh, other types of accounts that are held away as well. Um, but mostly 401ks is what people like to, you know, engage with us on that. So the assets are just fun. So if I've if I've got a half a million dollars with you and a half million dollars by four hundred one k, you you just bill me like a million dollar client at your standard. Exactly. Schedule. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. And then and then billing wise, how does that work? Because I know there are challenges for some that you can't necessarily pull the fee directly from the four hundred one k for the four hundred one k management side. Yeah. That's what keeps Amy and Jen busy for a few days each month. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, is, is coordinating all of that. So we do. We have fees coming, you know, coming in, you know, that that you know from from clients. Then we have to we have to pay Orion. So there are some, you know, uh, manual steps that have to go on in the background. But we've got a pretty pretty good process now on the monthly. But yeah, we we definitely have you know about three or four different platforms that need to be paid. And some of them, it would be nicer if they just could debit it directly. But uh, in a lot of cases, they can't. So for Eaglebrook Advisors, for example, and Pontera, you know, we ha- we can't pull fees from those accounts. We have to pull those fees from a taxable account. So if a client wants to do either of those, they either already have to have a taxable account set up that they want us to debit those fees from, or they would, in some cases, they would actually set an account up and just fund that with uh, the fees because we, we can't use, uh, it's it's an ERISA issue. So either, either they have a taxable account to, to bill against, or you'll create a taxable account and Fund it, journal money in, whatever is necessary to to be able to do do the requisite fee sweeps at that point. Exactly. Yep. Do you, do you ever have clients just like they're there just ain't no taxable dollars to to facilitate this? Does that come yeah. up as an issue? Yeah, we've seen that where somebody's just like they just have like here's my all of my money is in this one you know account this four hundred one k. We have seen that, um, and you know in that particular case, the client did just open an account. And, you know they had a small amount. You know they just put the fees through there. Uh, it is a little it is a little clunky um, and not the best process, but still the client wanted the help, and you know we were able to do it, so they were they were happy to pay the fees. So looking back, what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? Well, uh, we didn't really talk about you know, the initial <laughs> days, but um, you know, we launched the firm. Echo 45 was launched on February 21st of 2020, which if that, that day doesn't stick out to you, that was the day that COVID hit the markets. <laughs> so I left Merrill uh, after 19 years and 10 months and all of the comforts of you know Mother Merrill, uh, big salary, lots of money and a deferred comp that I walked away from uh, because I was so you know passionate about starting my own firm and doing things differently. Uh, but the first week we were in existence, the, the S&P was down 11.5%. <laughs> the first month we were in existence, the market was down 31%. We had no assets. I had five employees, rent. A five-year lease I had just taken on. A nine, I spent nine thousand dollars on a Surface Hub because I was so excited about the collaboration in the office. And of course, then nobody wanted to get around, you know, and collaborate around a uh-huh. uh, a Surface Hub. Um, so yeah, that's really the surprise. And it's uh, you know, uh, we had actually negotiated um, to go uh, with TD Ameritrade, and Schwab actually acquired TD Ameritrade like weeks before we launched. <laughs> so you know. Before, even before COVID, uh, like hit the markets, that whole thing. And I literally had to call that team and ask if we were still good, you know, is the, is the deal still on? So 
it's been extremely rocky since day one. Uh, and it's just been, you know, kind of crazy. But it was also a blessing, Michael, because when I left Merrill, and this is the surreal part, is that everybody else, their life changed too. For me, it's like I left Merrill and everything just went on the way it was, which would be normal. And then all of those people would be calling my clients the day that I left. But the day that I left is is literally when COVID hit and everybody was scrambling, you know, just trying to figure out their own lives. Uh, so in a way, it helped that I didn't have, you know, a hundred so advisors. Yeah. So they weren't coming after your clients when you when you transitioned out because they were just trying to deal with their own during the market insanity. Yeah, being sheltered in place and, and working at Merrill <laughs> with with no capability to do a Zoom call. I mean, that that didn't exist when I left that firm. You know, so I mean, I don't even know they had to scramble and put all that in place, you know, so that was it's 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 weird to me that 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 the world changed so much on that day. But in a way, it was like a weird blessing because it took about three months to bring everybody over. And that's right about the time the market started to improve. So our performance, you know, you know, even during, you know, horrible time, it, it, it was, it was just the timing. It's like my future self said, you know, it's going to be painful, but if you want to go, go right there, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, you know, right before that plummet. And um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been a crazy ride, you know, so I'd say that's probably the most surprising thing about our story. Interesting. And I would imagine is, is that the low point as well? Just having all that hit right as you transitioned or were there I, other low it, points along the way? Well, there was a few minutes there. You know, I remember the market was down like 2,500 points. Uh, I had one of our first clients in the office. I was just watching the market, you know, just plummet. Yeah. Um, you know, Trump had like just ghosted a meeting on on the COVID response and the market just went down another thousand points. Like it was just, I was like, what is going on? You know, what did I do? What, you know, how, you know, so that was a little scary in the beginning, but it was just, you just had to go. We had to implement, we just had to work. And, you know, we literally brought over um, enough to be registered directly with the SEC, you know, in the first, you know, number of months that we it had to happen. So we, we hit all of the metrics that we wanted to hit, you know, to stay in existence and keep moving forward. Um, but it took like the last three years to really kind of, you know, get everything sort of settled in and really dialed in after such a, a crazy start. And it's just now finally feeling like it's not affecting things. I mean, we've had people out. I mean, just COVID just was such a such a mess. And I really, nobody wants to talk about it anymore because that's all we talked about for, you know, two right. years. Uh, but yeah, everyone's ready to move forward. And um, it's just good to see people back in the office. And, and you know, I'm looking to grow the firm. You know, at this point, we finally have the, the core in place. I'm hoping... Couple people will hear this podcast and say, "Hey, I, I want to be able to do those things." Yeah, <laughs> you know, I want to work at a firm that it, you know is is looking to be on the the, the leading edge. Because yeah. you're in hiring mode now. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I'm looking for CFPs. You know, I, I really want to only bring on CFPs that want to you know work at a firm that really supports planning. Um, but yeah, we're in growth mode now. Look, definitely looking to, to to add to the team. So, what else do you like know now? You wish you could go back and tell you five, ten years ago when you were still building in the past? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's a, that's a great question. Um, I don't, I don't even know where to start with that. There's so many things changing all the time, Michael. I just, you know, um, you know, you're, you've just been such a huge resource. I mean, honestly, I, I was walking to work for, we were planning this, this transition for about 11 months, you know, to leave. So I was literally walking to work. I was living at, living in the city, working at 555 Cal, walking to and from work. And I was listening to the, the financial advisor success podcast, you know, just listening to every advisor and, and just listen to, you know, like, like you said, it's the, it's the, you know, it's the, the, the lower half of the iceberg, what's going on that you can't 
Google. You can't find that stuff because there's only firm owners telling yeah. their story that, that you can learn that thing. So, you know, the other one was, uh, I listened to a lot of Mindy Diamond at that time. She had another great, yep. uh, you know, source. I don't know if I haven't, you know, um, yeah, Mindy Diamond you know, podcast is still going. Yep. Wonderful. Yeah. See, it's like, if you're not, uh, if you don't have the need anymore, you know, like once you launch, that's uh, kind yeah. of a thing. But like at the time it was, it was yep. really you, you and Mindy Diamond were really the two sources that I thought were just so, amazing and it just i couldn't get enough i just was absorbing as much as i could and i just remember walking to work and i was like i'm gonna launch my firm someday and then i'm gonna go on kitsis's you know podcast and and tell my story so this is really a dream come true for me so thank you so much for for allowing me to come on today so so in that vein like what advice would you give younger newer advisors getting started today Mm. Oh man, you know everybody's different i i realize too i i i tend to think everyone thinks like i do (laughs) <laughs> you know, on a lot of those things. And, I, and the wonderful thing is that people don't, you know, it's what makes the world go around. I, I'm so, you know, I, like eat what you kill, you know what I mean? Like the old, you know, you yeah. know I, that's my client, you know, that's kind of thing. And I realize that not everybody is like that, you know, and, and, you know, not everybody wants that style of workplace. So I guess the advice, uh, you know, um, if some, you know, someone like me is very different than, you know, somebody who, who, who doesn't want that aggressive sort of, you know, daily, you know, ex, you know, life. So it's, it's hard to, you know, give general advice, but I don't compromise, I guess, um, is my thing. I, you know, even though I launched at the scariest time and possibly could have happened, I've, I've never regretted it. Even a second, even that first week when things were just melting and I was like, what did I do? Um, you know, what time did I pick to do this? Yeah. I still felt lucky, Michael, that I had the, the opportunity to do it. You know, I, I still feel so blessed every day that, you know, that I made that decision. You know, I, I never could have learned what I did if I didn't take that track. You got to put your time in, you got to learn. Um, but yeah, don't, don't sacrifice, you know, don't, uh, don't compromise, I guess is my, my advice. So as, as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that comes up that, that word success means very different things to different people. And so as someone who's built, who I think what anybody objectively call very successful advisory businesses, you're you know, crossing up towards $200 million under management and getting ready to grow further from here. It's like the the business is firing so well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, now I have employees. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's changing, you know, because I see them and their lives and I, you know, I'm, I'm now a job creator, you know. So for me, success is, is keeping this moving, um, taking care of my team, you know, making sure that they're able to do what they want in their lives and have productive, happy lives. Um, but still, you know, providing a, a, the best possible outcomes and experiences for our clients. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that success for me now is, is, is just making this firm better. I, I want to do this. I'm not, you know, going anywhere, <laughs> you know, I, I had at least a decade, you know, in, you know, uh, at minimum, you know, that I was, I was going to be doing this. We're in year three. So, you know, I've got at minimum seven more years that I'm just only focused on making this firm the best firm that I can make it and getting the word out there, uh, growing the team and continuing to bring on, you know, amazing individual people to add to our family, you know, cause it really does feel like a family, you know, everybody's kind of, you know, we got a member out you know, today, she got uh, an injury, small injury. Um, you know, everybody's in there supporting her, you know, uh, taking care of things, making sure she gets what she needs today. So that didn't happen in my past life. Um, <laughs> working for larger firms. Well, very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining us on the financial advisor success podcast. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been a, a true, uh, true pleasure. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? 
check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.